In 2021, the world is a very tricky place, endlessly complicated. Society is in decline or appears to be. It's only March and already the targets of cancel culture include Dr. Seuss, Pepe Le Pew, Dumbo, Gina Carano, Sharon Osbourne, Bill Burr, Shakespeare, Parler, the guy from Bachelor, the other guy from the Food Network, and most of all, Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. Holy cow. Meanwhile, we have gained racist strippers at the Grammys. After three years of nonstop cancel culture, the left claims that cancel culture doesn't even exist. In their next breath, they claim that, and this is a direct headline from the Washington Post, nobody loves cancel culture more than Republicans, end quote. Just like Antifa, it's just an idea. Even so, I don't think that we should trust any idea that causes an unprecedented amount of damage to almost every major city in America, but that's just me. But that all wouldn't matter because we can't even agree on whether or not truth still exists. I'm going somewhere. I'm going to the podcast, and that's what this is all about. A growing number of radicals claim that truth doesn't exist, which leaves people like us who believe in the traditions of the Enlightenment, the, the, the idea that there are certain truths that are self-evident. It leaves us feeling more and more isolated. All of this stuff is happening so fast that we barely have time to comprehend one ridiculous disaster before another dozen pop up. A few months ago, I met a I met a guy who is remarkable because of what he's done and what he can explain. Today's guest has spent the last 10 years examining the movements that have led to all of this chaos. He wrote about it in his book, War for Eternity. Now, this is a book that defies political classification. It doesn't fit neatly on either side of the fence because what it talks about is the war for eternity, a, a, a global war. This is probably why Glenn Greenwald called it an indispensable text for understanding the most profound and tumultuous political shifts in defining societies on every continent, end quote. Ditto for me. On top of being an author, today's guest is an assistant professor at the University of uh, Colorado Boulder and a scholar of radical nationalism. This one, every person on the right needs to hear. Today, Benjamin Teitelbaum. Staying healthy is really tough, especially if you're like me and you like pie. I mean, look at me. I'm not exactly a health nut. Uh, when we rounded the corner on a new year, I had resolved to lose weight and I have 11 pounds and I'm working on it. It's difficult for me. I like pie and candy and candy bars. Oh, no, I get you a fruit roll up. No, I get you a protein bar. Oh, my gosh. I want a pie or a candy bar. My wife introduced me to built bars. Um. And I know you're thinking, oh, it's a protein bar. It tastes like crap. No, no, no. Most protein bars, sure, they taste like you're eating the stuffing out of an old couch. But built bars are different. They're made with real chocolate. They taste like a candy bar. 
These things are high in protein, low in calories and carbs. We're talking three to five net carbs. So it's incredible if you're doing something like the keto diet. But best of all, the flavors are the best. Caramel brownie, cookies and cream, raspberry, mint brownie. I mean, the list goes on and on, and it is really good. So don't give up on your resolution. Go to Built Bar. They're the answer. BuiltBar.com. Use the promo code BEC15. Save 15% off your next order. Promo code BEC15 at BuiltBar.com. Ben, when I found your book, War for Eternity, I don't know if it was like I found a lost brother or if uh, if I felt like, oh, my gosh, there's now a club of three of us that are paying attention to this. Um, this is, I believe, the one of the most important subjects uh, that can be talked about today, especially for people who are on the right. Um, I have I have said so clearly for so long, just because people s- say they're with you on X, Y or Z, it doesn't mean that they believe the same thing that you do. And we are in a society now talking about right wing extremism and I think the media and everybody else wants to make that into just everybody who voted for Donald Trump. But this is right wing extremism, and it's extraordinarily concerning and confusing, right? Yes, yes. And I have to say, Glenn, it's, it's really uh, to your, a compliment to you that you're interested in patrolling this this area of your, of your own political coalition because you're entirely right this is all politics where you bring together different factions you're going to overlap in some area that's mm-hmm. why you can form a coalition with somebody mm-hmm. but the question is is what about those areas where you don't overlap right. how important is it and how how polarized are you on those topics and the the problem with this the reason why i say this is confusing is because um, I, I first discovered this by reading um, uh, Dugan from Russia. And yes. if you read his work, um, you can read it as an average person. And I, I could get three chapters in to one of his books and go, yeah, I feel that way, too. And if you yes. don't understand the difference of what he's saying, using the same words you might use, you are on it's the difference really between the road of death and the road of life am i overstating that i i don't think so i don't think so when i think that sometimes small differences are are consequential here we it's interesting there's i think when i'm presenting this this body of thought especially to conservatives especially to religious conservatives you will hear them say that, oh, this, this is sounding good. 90% of this, 95% right. of this is yep. sounding good. And then there's a little sliver of something there mm-hmm. that makes them, that I actually had Rod Dreher once say to me, it, it, all of a sudden he'd be reading this and it, it, you get the feeling that there was like someone in the room watching him. A yeah. creepy feeling that would yeah. come over this. Because it's hard I, to pinpoint. Yeah. It's hard and, to pinpoint, but it's there. And I think that uh, that feeling of something over your shoulder is, I mean, I, 
uh, I read I read this stuff and uh, I feel it's evil. I mean, it is darkness mm-hmm. uh, as much as you would get from somebody who believes in the 12th Imam, you know, and the end of the world. It is that dark mm-hmm. and that evil. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Um, and I think if the average person was asked to define what a traditionalist is, I might define myself as a traditionalist. I believe in the Constitution. I believe in the founding fathers. I, uh, I believe in America. I, I go to church on Sundays. You know, I believe in, you know, God and mom and apple pie and Chevrolet. But that's not what we're talking about. Everything that you just described, I think, could be labeled traditionalist with a lowercase t. Mm-hmm. And that's the only little bit of help that we get here in, in identifying what this is. Right. When we talk about an uppercase t traditionalism, we're talking about a very, very small spiritual and eventually political movement that really comes into existence in the early 1900s. And yes, they might share with you a belief that things used to be better. Mm -hmm. Or that maybe the principles that we should live our lives through today and which we should hold to in the future were established in the past. Right. And therefore that we should be critical of the notion of progress. Right. Mm -hmm. But they wrap all that in in something far more arcane and esoteric. And they wrap it all in in a sort of worship of the past and also a belief that where we are headed right now is going to lead us to destruction and that that destruction is good and necessary. And and Dugan Um, describes this as and we'll get into who Alexander Dugan is in a little while. But but I don't know if this is the way the American traditionalist and we'll explain what that means here in a minute. Dugan yeah. d- describes this as the the apocalypse or the end of the world as described biblically. And but they're working to bring it on because it's good. Yes. OK. Yes. And that's the way it is all, with traditionalists all around the world. It is really the biblical apocalypse. Not quite. Okay. So maybe right here is where we start to see a distinction between between let's say a conservative Christian and a, and a, one of these capital T traditionalists. Okay. So the way it, let's say in in the apocalypse that you would hear about in in the Bible in that biblical tradition, it tends to be followed by some sort of heavenly utopia. Right. Right. Um, a rapture. Right. The traditionalists instead see an earthly apocalypse as being the prelude to an earthly utopia. And it's in this that might seem like a small difference there. But oh, what so, that the, the, means, so there's no Jesus returning on this one. Not not in the sense okay. that they are talking about. Okay. No, they're talking about human society, secular, political, worldly, material society returning to a utopia. Right. And again, that might seem like a small difference, but it means that destruction can become the tool of a politician, someone working with actual material politics in the world today who could bring on destruction in the most concrete sense that we would think about based on the promise that afterwards everything is going to be better here. And that's because we've destroyed progress. We've destroyed the modern world. Yes, Correct. Including the ideas of the Enlightenment. 
including the including especially the ideas of the Enlightenment. So Mm -hmm. um, this is where this goes off the rails so quickly if you know what you're looking for. But if you said to a lot of people, even on the left today, I mean, the extreme left, you'd say the ideas of the Enlightenment, we got to stop that. There is no empirical evidence of anything that works with the philosophy for a lot of people on the extreme left. Right. Yes. Yes. Opposition to individualism, opposition uh, to meritocracy, all all of those principles that come from the Enlightenment are, yes, are being targeted on the left, of course. Right. Right. Um, How do these people fall into? Have they just inserted themselves into uh, the right left spectrum? are they using the European right left spectrum or, or how do they fit into right? Because that's not the, mm-hmm. I know they are fitting into the right, but they don't fit once you know who they are. Absolutely. Not. Absolutely. These are not people who are going to be in partnership with Ted Cruz, right. with Paul Ryan. Right. Um, when you ask if they could fit into the, to the right. Yes, it is typically the European nationalistic yes, right okay. that they're going to have more resonance with. Right. Remember one of the <clears throat> one of the key objects, one of the key targets of this way of thinking is the free market, is universalism, uh, the, you know, the belief in universal human rights or or universal truths, the sort of the sort of uh, conceptual world that we see communicated in the US Constitution. Rights, uh, we take these rights as being self-evident, for mm-hmm. example, for all people. Uh, a universalism in Christianity. They instead, they they want to see um, a world that is a little bit more siloed. Um, a world where individualism is subordinated to the collective. A world where capitalism is subordinated to the nation state. Um, are there strains of that, let's say, in American conservatism? Yes, but yeah. but they're much more pronounced in the European in the European context. Mm-hmm. So it's not an accident that when we see this come into American politics, it is when the American right is starting to to fuse a bit more with that populist nationalists and that right, is that we see in europe and that is happening in america it's so important to separate europe from america but it happens when populism happens here because you connect on the things like i believe in god i believe that yes. these traditions shouldn't be lost i believe in the some of the old ways where conservative means to conserve the things of the past that worked not to reject the future and progress, just conserve the things at work. They don't, they reject the future and all modernism. But you again don't know that. So when you're talking populism, they can just slide in covertly and you don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. This isn't this is an example of, of that that coalition building I mean, populism overlaps more with this way of thinking. Correct. Than free market liberalism or libertarianism, like what, what we tend to say right. in the United States. Right. So so there the, the coalition is popular. It, it conflicts with populism as well, though. Here, too, we see a, a sort of marriage of, of necessity uh, between this capital T traditionalism and populism. And they will work together for a while. But the question mm-hmm. is, is if let's suppose one of them succeeds, let's suppose 
Trump's movement, uh, let's say, really materializes and achieves all of its goals. At that point, we would see potentially these two strains of, of thought break apart. They right. can also collaborate with libertarians up to a certain point. So um, um, both of them oppose the establishment, right. both oppose a, a strong, you know, liberal government, uh, right. you know, centralized federal government. Question is, what happens when that government is disassembled? Correct. Is it left that way or is a new sort of theocracy put in place? I that's found what, that's where the I is. found myself um, agreeing wholeheartedly with a um, a very strong environmentalist. I am, I consider myself an environmentalist. I'm concerned about the environment. I also can read a thermometer, you know, global warming. And I also will give the fact that um, if there is warming, it doesn't seem logical to me that man doesn't have a role when we have done what we've done to the earth and the air. Um, yes. However, I disagree on the solutions that are proposed. Um, and uh, yes. and I found myself with a guy who believes in carbon credits, that the government needs to be involved 100 percent deeply. Um, and he found that uh, what the World Economic Forum is doing with ESGs is a sham. Now, he's in one of the biggest hedge funds, BlackRock, and he said, yes. For a while there, I thought, well, at least we're doing some good. Now I realize, uh-uh, we're not. This is actually very harmful. And we can agree yes. on those two things. And, and he was kind of in bed with something that is diametrically opposed to him when it comes time to actually do something. Right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, there again, we see that a small, a small difference. Yeah. Uh, a, Becomes a small big in the end. Can make, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. OK, so um, before we get to the American side, which is really very important, I've, I've been ringing this bell. I honestly, Ben, I've been looking for you for a long time. I'm like, how are we the only ones that are talking about this? Um, and have been ringing the bell about Alexander Dugan for a long time and even his influence here in America, especially in the churches. Um, he's very well financed and uh, and and very well connected all around the world. Let's start with him. Yes. Who is he? That's quite a question because he's difficult to define. You could call him a philosopher. You could call him a media personality. You could also call him a diplomat, or you could call him a political operative. Some people would call him a warmonger. And at different times, he appears to be all of those things. He has written some very influential books in Russia. He wrote uh, really a, a seminal text called The Foundations of Geopolitics right after the fall of the Soviet Union, which essentially outlined a plan for Russia to reassert itself against the United States once mm -hmm. the Soviet Union had, had disintegrated. Um, and and it was it was elaborate, although he left out a lot of his uh, a lot of his earlier esoteric occultist yearnings and, and interpretations of the world. Dugan has a has a very complicated background, which which we probably don't have time to get into. But so he writes that text. It becomes essentially required reading for the next generation of Russian military generals. 
And when you have someone like that, and you're talking about intellectualism, I'm sure you know this, Glenn, it's hard to quantify their influence. Yeah. How, do they, how do you quantify the influence of someone like Sean Hannity, yourself, Bill O'Reilly, Rachel Maddow? Mm-hmm. That's, this, this is a soft powder. And so that's where, that's where Dugan enters the stage in the late 90s. Later on, we see him being uh, employed as an advisor to certain members of the Duma in, in Russia. Um, we see him uh, almost inexplicably showing up in situations of profound diplomatic tension when Russia was having uh, this conflict with separatists in Chechnya. Dugan turns up to be one of the mediators mm. in, in their debates. This is mm-hmm. officially, again, just a philosopher. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, 2015, when Russia, Turkey, Syria have a major diplomatic crisis over the shooting down of a Russian plane by Turkish forces uh, right. along the border to Syria and, and, and Turkey, uh, we don't know how all these players got together and solved the situation. It was it was very tense for a while. And about a month or two after everything had resolved, Ankara and Moscow had had come up with an agreement. It turns out Alexander Dugan was the mediator again. So and and throughout all of those instances, we don't quite know what his official role was. He has met Putin. He's never been an official advisor to Putin, but he he seems to be used in these key places. So so but he we're is talking kind, about a public he intellectual. He is kind of a guy that you wouldn't want to publicly connect with if you're a Russian politician, I think. I, I mean, I've seen his interviews, uh, whatever the big um, interview show, kind of like our 60 Minutes, where they sit around that big, huge table um, and uh, it's a one-on-one interview. He has, I mean, he has talked about to the guy's face rationally. He's like, yeah, I think some people need to be executed. And the host said, would I be one of those people? And he said, well, yeah. Yeah, you should be gone. I mean, um, he is he is as frightening in some ways uh, as Hitler must have been in 1930, 1928. A guy with no power really seems like a fringe player. But the things he says, if you take him seriously and literally, uh, he's an extreme danger to the world. Well, think of it in this terms, if you if you compare him to someone like Hitler, <clears throat> who he says, if he, I'm not mistaken, he says Hitler's problem, he didn't go far enough. Right. I, I'm not sure if he would still say that today. OK, um, but he has. <laughs> OK, <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> think of it in these terms, in these terms, Glenn. he he looks at the United States. He looks at, let's say, the founding principles of the U.S. and considers them to be a sort of metaphysical evil. Um, looks at the universal values that are espoused in the Constitution, enlightenment values, the individualism, um, and and says that these are values that anyone opposed to them <clears throat> cannot coexist with. Uh, that sets us up for a sort of all-or-nothing conflict, and he believes that Russia, Eurasia, in particular, uh, have a sort also of metaphysical mandate to push against the United States. There's not a lot of room there for coexistence. Mm-hmm. So when you see a sort of apocalyptic yearning in this way of looking at the world. That's where it's rooted, is, is a belief in a fundamental inability for us to coexist. And that's one reason why throughout his history, he's also wanted to see a coalition, not just uh, 
with with Russia and let's say China, which is which is fairly well well publicized. But he's also been quite interested in bringing Mujahideen, Islamist enemies of the United States together, so that all of these anti-American forces can collaborate against the West. And and again, for him, this is this is more than just geopolitics. Geopolitics and states represent a metaphysical, spiritual conflict in his mind. Secularism, individualism, enlightenment values, modernity versus the pre-modern versus tradition versus eternity, essentially, which is represented by these these other states. And, it, and again, that it, it might sound it might sound wacky, but this is this is a person who has had a major platform and has figured into high level diplomatic actions. Okay, so um, on part he, of the Russian government, if the thing that stuck out when I first started looking into him is that his symbol for his philosophy or or whatever you would call it is the ancient symbol of chaos. Uh, correct. Uh, the chaos. And, Yes. Right. And and anybody who's been watching or listening to me for a long time knows that I I said beginning in 2006, I think. The thing to look for in the future will be those who want chaos. That's the real danger is the chaos theory of just tear it all down and somehow or yes. another it'll magically be better. This is the philosophy of the extremists uh, in Iran with the 12th Imam. This is his uh, viewpoint as well. He um, he rejects capitalism, fascism and communism. He says those were the the three that were really tried in the 20th century and all of them failed. But he's his fourth political theory is really more of a of a hybrid of all of the bad parts of each of those, right? <laughs> you, you could say, yes, it, it, it almost, it looks at those, at those other modern political ideologies, fascism, communism, liberalism, and, and tries to find in them a way to consistently oppose individualism, uh, individual freedom, you could say, um, an interest in economic advance and progress finds a way to oppose all of those ideas and wraps them, wraps them into one. Okay. Um, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. His, his religious, the religious side of this, um, he is, uh, yeah, I, in fact, I'm pretty sure he doesn't even believe in God. Does he? Um, he, he's, he says he absolutely believes in God. Okay. Um, but not a God really <laughs> That I would recognize. I know he cloaks himself or tries to bring back the, you know, a renaissance of the Eastern Orthodox Church. But I, I it seems to me that that's more of a vehicle than an actual belief. Am I right? Well, let's. Let's back up for a okay. moment. So most traditionalists, these capital T traditionalists we were talking about, they they look at world history and they say that ages, millennia ago, certainly before the time of Christ, there was a single true religion. That's the tradition, capital T. That's what it, that's what it is. And that over time, this tradition, this religious truth 
was gradually forgotten, destroyed. That's why we started writing is because we started to forget it uh, mm. in, in their in their history telling. And the truths that were that were contained in it were splintered in all these different directions. And they can be found today in piecemeal fashion in certain religious practices, typically the mystical versions of, let's say, Islam, Sometimes Christianity, and in Christianity's case, it's typically Catholicism and East Orthodox Christianity, sometimes Kabbalah and Judaism, but but most often it's Hinduism. Now, that means that some traditionalists, some traditionalists might convert to Christianity, they might endorse Christianity, and on the, and on the face of it, yes, they would appear to be a Christian like you, Glenn. But there's this backstory to it, right. which is the belief that... Uh, Christianity is just an imperfect pathway to something else, something pre-Christian, something larger than Christianity. Most often traditionalists believe that it would be like the the Druids and things like that. Right. And is it almost a a Gnosticism or a Gnostic approach that you're born knowing and then you lose it or, you know, there's only a few of us that really get it. That's an interesting way to put it. Okay. The, the the truth is that I mean, if they think that once there was there was a true authentic revelation to to humanity, they also believe that today you can only get a scrap of it if you fully devote yourself to one religious path. But that doesn't mean the, that that religious path in some way has a monopoly on truth. It's just one of many. But during your lifetime, you have no hope of 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 let's say um, pursuing all of them to their, to their fullest capacity. So that's why they would devote themselves to this. Now, there are other traditionalists who say Christianity should not be a part of this, say that it is the odd religion out. And actually that Christianity is what led to progress, progressivism, secularism, the enlightenment, modernism, you're probably familiar with that. I would tend to agree with that, especially mm -hmm. individualism. Um, can we go to back to Hinduism for a second? Have you read Hitler's yes. Monsters? Yes, the text uh, oh was 2017, right? Yes. We are brothers, because uh, that is yes. a very <laughs> difficult scholarly kind of book um, made for geeks like us. Um, <laughs> and uh, in that, he talks a lot about how Hinduism was something that they were pursuing, that they that, uh, you know, they 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 the, they say they were Christian and they certainly weren't Hindu, but they had this mystical belief and it was driven by Hinduism. Is there connection Absolutely. there? And what is that about Hinduism that draws these people? Oh, certainly, certainly. So so when we think about, you know, Nazism, we think about the, the veneration of the Aryan race, which which, of course, Hitler saw as this blonde haired, blue eyed master oh, race of Germanic peoples. Gosh. The term Aryan, you might not realize this, but that relates to what is thought to be a tribe of North Indian people who eventually invaded India from the north. Yeah. And and also other territories in that that area. The the, the word Iran yeah. also derives from Aryan. It means right. the land of the Aryans. And and there there is some historical truth to that part of the story where, where things get much more complicated is when you try and connect as Hitler was doing Europe to that correct to that, uh, that particular history. Now, all of those 
uh, we, we speak about Indo-European languages, right? These are languages going from, from the Indian subcontinent all the way up to Iceland um, uh, throughout, throughout world history. All of those languages do have a lot in common with each other. Right. Um, and that might suggest that there is some sort of history of all the people living in that area. But that's why Add we got to that, that fact. That's why Hitler got to the Vikings, right? That blue eyed, blonde hair kind of Viking look. And which also mm-hmm. brought in all of the, you know, uh, I'm trying to uh, Wagner kind of stuff. Right. Yes. And, yes. and, and a- does Dugan mm-hmm. do the same thing? Is he saying that the Russians are that Aryan? Absolutely. Part of the Indo-European world. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, and think of it in, the, in these terms. So they believed and there's truth to this, that the pre-Christian religions that spread from India through Iran, Zoroastrianism, paganism through Europe, right. that they were all part of the same the same religious world, actually. They're all variations of the same thing. Christianity comes in. Islam comes in. For Europe, all those practices die off. But in India, they don't. In India, they live on as Hinduism. Uh, so, so there are a lot of people who look to Hinduism as being the last remnant of European pre-Christian paganism, and and therefore, uh, especially if you're, let's say, one of these figures we're talking about, Alexander Dugan, uh, or a traditionalist, you see Hinduism as being virtuous and maybe even better than the other religions because it is older and because it hasn't been tarnished. That makes it closer to that eternal, ancient truth. Um, that they're trying to get to then than the other practices. So, that's why that's one of the reasons why Hinduism is 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 elevated. So when he uses because he talks a lot about the Eastern Orthodox Church reestablishing itself. And that is purely like Hitler using the using Christianity um, as a vehicle to help him destroy uh, there's no love here for the Eastern Orthodox Church, right? Or is there? So it, I, I don't think that I think the way to put it is that there's no partiality for Christianity. Um, I think you're entirely right in saying that the Eastern Orthodox Church for him ser- serves the function of being a banner for nationalism. Correct. Yeah. Right? Something What's, everybody can unite on. Every Russian can unite on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And, and, that's, and, that, and, and when we get to America, words. that's why Christianity is important again. It's not that the, this is a Christian movement. In fact, it's the opposite of a Christian movement. It's that it's a banner that they can use to unite people on because those people who are Christian will hear words about tradition and they're like, yeah, I'm with that. Right. Right. Okay. Right. But thing, thing in these terms, though, I mean, Christianity, the 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 principle that that Christ's salvation was available to all people throughout the world in yes. all times, and this this is what is behind the evangelistic mm-hmm. impetus to a lot of, of modern mm-hmm. Christianity. That is a sort of anti-nationalistic doctrine Mm -hmm. that is that is that is a way of looking at global society that says that the boundaries we put around ourselves are actually a problem and actually stopping uh, a divine message from getting through so it's the it's the opposite of using christianity as the banner of of a tribe let's say that is only a message for some people that was part of the revolutionary uh, element in christianity um was this universal element so so by treating christianity in this way it you really are violating a principle of it and that's again another reason why a lot of traditionalists do not identify with christianity they are an anti-christian right in most cases 
All right. Now let's talk about yes, we got two other people to go through. And one of them is extraordinarily important in America. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, let, let me just touch base one on one more thing. He yes. is he's kind of the co uh, I can't say founder, but the uh, co-leader in some ways with in in the world he's really made the push he into europe um and some of these really spooky european right um organizations um are really gaining traction with his help his fundraising uh and uh his his connections am i wrong on that we're talking about it Alexander Dugan, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, when so so nationalist parties in Europe have really had a decision of kind of who, what are their geopolitics going to be? Correct. Are they pro European Union? Are they pro United States? Are they pro Russia? Dugan has been a force pushing, especially in Austria, Italy, Hungary, and France, mm-hmm. to make sure that this ascendant, politically powerful um, movement from uh, from the right in Europe will be pro-Russian. Um, and in a lot of instances, he's been successful in that. I could mention Greece as well. Oh, yeah. Um, in saying that, okay, as these political forces are imagining a new, a new role in the world for their respective nations, uh, are, how are they going to relate to Russia? And, and he's been there to say, well, if you are social conservatives, Putin is your guy. Right. In fact, um, he, I think he's the guy that up. was behind i think it was notre dame one year couldn't afford the christmas tree which is traditional and i think either he funded it or putin funded it um you know basically russia is your leader your your, your leader, spiritual especially leader. when it comes to your yeah. spiritual leader yeah. when it comes to spiritual matters and cultural conservatism yeah. we're we're the ones who are behind you yeah not not, not necessarily is- leader defender probably is better yeah they're your spiritual defender because we believe in those traditional values Um, absolutely and and glenn when you talk about this cultural conservatism and christianity being uh, being a sort of facade it's especially clear when you look at putin's past because he did not care about this at all at the beginning of the 2000s correct no this he he had no ideology when he began uh you know really solidifying his power cultural conservatism came later um as as he began to to imagine a a a geopolitical role and a message for himself aside from just russian might so um let me just stop one more place with him brexit I know he was involved in Brexit, but I don't think that the average person in England had any idea what he stood for. He was just against the European Union. He's for destruction of everything. Um, Yes. And and he helped, if I'm not mistaken, fund and advise some of the Brexit pieces. Is that true or not? I don't. I, I don't know that much about about Dugan doing that uh, personally. He okay. certainly was supporting it and he was using his media outlets to to support Brexit. Okay. I mean, in his mind, a weakened European Union means a weakened United States in right. Europe and there and thereby also opportunities for Russia to push outward. But as you're mentioning, also, this is an example of destroying and disintegrating some some right. political entity. And that that appeals to, and- to Dugan, no doubt. 
and also um, I think people and because I can watch I can watch England and relate to it without being mm-hmm. emotional, you know, and so it's yes. a better place to really understand it because in some ways we feel the same way, but that's not us. Um, and what people were feeling the if you were a traditional uh, Englishman, you were losing your heritage. They were now starting to say that you can't even fly the British flag and, you know, Great Britain isn't so special. And maybe they have some problems in uh, in the past and we should erase that and we should be more of this global community. And you were seeing all of these influences coming from outside of your country. You found them damaging and your politicians were lying to you. That is the American situation, and that's what a traditionalist needs to be able to march in and say, we're with you and we can help you, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And add, add to everything that you just said, there's, there's also the question of sovereignty. There, right. there's the fact that, you know, British, English fishermen and fishermen were not able to control their own destiny and changes to fishing laws would take place that, you know, in halls of power that were so remote and so inaccessible uh, that, yes, of course, you, I think it's very easy to understand feeling disgruntled and, and feeling resentful of, of that sure. political, political entity. The question is always what is going to fill the void when it is destroyed and, and what interests are going to be served by each action. That makes this complicated. That makes this something other than a black and white situation. Okay, so now before we come to America, uh, there's a second leader of this. Tell me about him. So his name is Olavo de Carvalho. Um, and he's most often just described as Olavo, his first name. He is a Brazilian. He lives in the United States. He's lived in the United States since 2005. Uh, and if Dugan is hard to characterize, if I can't really decide whether to call him a philosopher or a political operative, that's that's even more so the case with this figure, Olavo. He's recognized today as being most often, quote unquote, the guru of Jair Bolsonaro, who's the president of Brazil. He rises to power in Brazil after a, a a major political power vacuum and a lot of resentment against Mm -hmm. uh, the progressive left uh, administration and establishment in in the country's government. Um, But Olavo uh, is, he's a media figure. He's an educator. He's a philosopher. He does not have any official position in the Bolsonaro government, although he does have acolytes who, uh, let's say currently the, the current foreign minister is a former student of his. Um, past ministers of education have come straight straight out of his sphere of influence. Mm. Um, so so nothing formal, and yet you will not find uh, a, a Brazilian political observer who does not consider him extremely powerful. Now, he uh, is known to most of the Brazilian public as a sort of Catholic zealot and as a, as a conservative Christian voice. Not all of them know that he is also, uh, in the past, an, an astrologer, um, spent most of his time working in astrology, um, and it appears in the 1980s that he converted to Islam, and uh, uh, still today, some of his sons are still uh, still affiliated with Islam. The story behind that, how you could be both, let's say, a, a convert to Islam and a Catholic zealot, uh, and, and, and an astrologist. <laughs> and an astrologist, yes. Yeah rests with this history and traditionalism. 
um, he was initiated into one of the most closed uh, and let's say direct uh, ideological and, and um, let's say religious schools tying to the to the original traditionalists. This he was initiated into the religious school, the Islamic school, the Tariqa of Fritjof Schoen, who is a follower of a man named Rene Gunon, who started traditionalism essentially. And uh, throughout most of his career, he has been interested in studying esoteric, occultist, uh, alternative spirituality, new age sort of stuff, in, in addition to traditionalism, and relatively late came to conservatism and then, and then let's say, populism and, and the right. Earlier in his, in his life, he was a communist. Um, so this is this is a highly eccentric figure, um, produced a lot of texts, has a lot of followers, difficult to characterize, but undoubtedly powerful as well. Why is he here in the United States? We don't really know. That's, that's a great question. Um, if you ask him, he would say that the political situation in Brazil just got to be too tiresome and he had to leave because the leftists were were just running amok, essentially. What is strange is that now he's in so much favor. He, I mean, there are literally squares of people holding, you know, placards with his name on it, shouting that Olavo is right, and and the and the president Jair Bolsonaro gave him a medal. He still will not go back to Brazil. So, so uh, I think some shrewd observers are suspecting that there are there are some major legal issues that would come into play were he to to go back into the in, into the country. Now, here's where it becomes personal for a lot of conservatives, um, and it is one of the reasons why I was adamant against Donald Trump at the beginning, and it wasn't had, didn't have anything to do with Donald Trump. It had everything to do with who he was surrounded by, um, mm-hmm. and I am not convinced at all that Donald Trump... It knows or understands nor cares about any of this stuff. Would you agree with that or not? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, I don't think he would get through a page of this. Yeah, I don't think he would. Um, But he is advised or has been advised by the main anchor here in America, who I find to be an extraordinarily disturbing man, Steve Bannon. He's the... He's the third in this unholy trinity. Steve Bannon, just to, to give give some insight, uh, we've been talking about Alexander Dugan quite a bit here in this program. In November 2018, after he left the White House, Steve Bannon met Alexander Dugan in Rome. They spent an entire day together. Uh, the purpose of the meeting from Bannon's side was to push a, a, a geopolitical agenda. But the the reason that the two of them got together in the first place was because they both identified with traditionalism in different ways they both shared this this way of thinking how did so that is a how did bannon introduction. How, where is that coming traditionalism where is that coming up in america how does he trip into this it's it's complicated and contradictory of course uh because for most most of the history of traditionalism and for most traditionalists, the United States itself is an abomination. It is a state created uh, in 
modernity and with the values of the enlightenment that's that's part of our dna in their mind so how you could combine that with traditionalism is, is a real question and it, and it and it took a lot of work but for bannon he has been interested in this world this alternative spirituality world for quite some time right. um, people tend to read his biography and see a lot of gimmicks. Let's say, you know, Ben Shapiro, for example, uh, you know, is a, is a strong critic of Bannon and sees, you know, just kind of one gimmick after after the next with him. Right. That that can be true in certain respects, but he has been interested in this this ideological world well before he got involved in politics. Um, that kind of begins during his college years when he is interested in Buddhism and transcendental meditation, stuff like that. A lot of people were into that, of course, in the United mm-hmm. States. But as he moves into the 80s and the 90s, he he's not only reading these authors and authors close to them, he's also starting to associate with other people uh, who do as well, starting to participate in communities. One thing I, I document in my book is, is that in the early 90s, he was meeting with a, a group of alternative spiritualists, alternative spiritualists in California who were all followers of, of a mystic named Gurdjieff. Who may be known to some of your some of your viewers who's kind of adjacent it's not really a traditionalist but but in the same world and throughout that time he he learns about um traditionalism he starts reading deeply into it i was very impressed actually by the breadth of his knowledge of course i i spent about two years interviewing bannon about this um and when we get into the 2010s then we know that he's he's also reading Alexander Dugan, familiar with Dugan, admiring his books, not just a reader, but an admirer of, of Dugan's writing. And that all ends up being uh, the prelude to this meeting and this attempt so, to collaborate. So uh, this is, first of all, you're an ethnomusicologist by trade. That's what you do, right? <laughs> yes. Which I don't even That's know what that is. You study music like jazz and and tr- track it to, or uh, what is, what you, is you that? could do that. Eth- ethnomusicology is the combination is the study of music and culture. So okay. it's, you could say that I'm an anthropologist. I, what I typically say to people is that, uh, I'm a scholar of politics. I like, I study politics and culture and in contrast with my political scientists colleagues, I think that the most important uh, political developments do not take place in a ballot box. Not they're not yeah. registered on opinion polls they take place in culture and so music is something that i've looked at in the past but when music is not involved i i'm happy to to depart from it as well yeah it's interesting i'd love to talk to you about just that i mean i'm fascinated by martin luther king when he said no movement is a real movement unless it has a soundtrack uh and uh and and he's exactly right um yeah so but so if that's your gig and you're not interested in things really you your depth of knowledge is enormous how did you get interested in in this with steve bannon and how did you get so many interviews and get him to say the things that he said on record not shyly that that last question glenn i can tell you right right now i do not know the answer to i i bannon likes attention I think that he likes attention from from academics, um, and I know how to be persistent. That's part of part of the the backstory here. Is I, I made myself in a nuisance and showed up at his house. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I got the the slightest hint of receptiveness, um, so uh, that 
that helps, but I don't know why he divulged as much as he did to me, uh, to be, to be completely honest the the, the fact that he was meeting with Alexander Dugan, why, why he told me that I've, I haven't the slightest, the slightest clue, but to the first part of your question, I, I've been studying these movements and these, these ideologies for about a decade. Um, and I knew about traditionalism from Europe. I knew that it was kind of the strange wing of, of let's say the right wing populist nationalist cause right. that was that was really European sweeping across right. the continent. European right has changed politics over there forever. It's, I mean, it was it was a major historical transformation mm-hmm. these past these past decades. Traditionalism, you would see these figures show up at seminars, at rallies, at at you know uh, political festivals and things like that. They were not the movers and the shakers. They were the oddballs at the at the edge of the gathering, and that's partly why when I heard that Bannon read some of the, some traditionalist authors. And that's all we really knew. Let's say 2017, 2018. Mm-hmm. There are a few journalists who learned a little bit about this. That was enough to to catch my attention because I didn't think anyone with political power, anyone who had kind of succeeded at climbing up, um, uh, climbing through the halls of power in the way someone like Bannon had, they would ever, ever even know about this stuff. I Let guarantee alone embrace you, it. Let alone embrace it. That's a whole nother stage. I yeah. guarantee if you went around Washington prior to to Bannon's arrival, asked senators, congressmen, if they ever knew of any of these authors, they would have no clue. I, I think they, they if still, I said traditionalism, they'd start talking about something else. Yeah. I, I, I have to tell you, honestly, I I think I've had in 10 years one guest who, you know, they're you know, very smart politically, globally, I'll say Alexander Dugan. And I think I've had one person say, oh, yeah, that's that guy. They all dismiss him if they know him. And most don't even know yes. what this is. And it's no, so absolutely. toxic. This is I, I mean, it's it, it's striking because his primary cause and the way if he has had influence, it has it has been influence. <clears throat> in stoking the Kremlin on into additional conflicts with the West and with the United States. So, you know, Dugan has uh, served as a mouthpiece for the war cause in Georgia, uh, said that Russia needed to intervene in Georgia. Your, your, mm-hmm. your uh, listeners might remember mm-hmm. that, that particular conflict, because to do so was actually to fight against the United States. Um, in Ukraine, he did the same thing, uh, demanded and started um, you know, drumming up support in Russia for military intervention into Ukraine and worked in Syria as well to make sure that a coalition between Syria, Russia, and even Turkey in a, in a complicated way would maintain itself so that the United States would would stay out of it. So this is, this is an actor who is principally opposed to um, a lot of U.S. geopolitics. So I share, I sh- I share your reaction um, over the fact that not more U.S. politicians know about him. Yeah. Um, when we when we look now at Bannon, I, I'll never forget uh, 2015, 2016. Um, you have Alexander Dugan on his YouTube channel just raving about Donald Trump. He is our man. Um, and I think if you're an idiot, you think, oh, see, the Russians are behind him. Is that a Bannon influence? Was that a chaos uh, call? Why, why was he for Donald Trump? 
when you when you talk about chaos, that that's my principal interpretation of this. We can all think what we will about Donald Trump. One thing we could probably agree on is that he was a fundamental break with the status quo in U.S. Yes. politics. Right. Right. Whether you like it or you or you don't like it. Correct. And when you have something like that, when you have an establishment exploded, all these different interests can start to fill that void, uh, and and you can have a widely divergent range of, of thinkers and actors who see an opportunity for themselves. And that all that is magnified if you have someone like Dugan who simply likes the chaos. It's mm. not necessarily that he wants to see the void created by Trump filled with someone who he likes. It is simply the fact that the void has been created. That itself is the goal for a lot of these thinkers. And what is the goal? Um, so that excites them. What is the goal of Steve Bannon then? Because if you're really a traditionalist, you don't want the United States. You're looking for a great end of all of this uh, and a restart of something else. Steve Bannon meeting with uh, Dugan as an American also doesn't make sense. He calls us the land of the sea, or the people of the sea, which Dugan does, which yes. is anybody yes. in the NATO alliance. He wants the people of the sea to be destroyed. Yes. What is yes. Bannon's end game here? What what did he see? When, when he in interviews talks about the disassembly of the administrative state. Think about that as the tip of the iceberg. Think about that as the the public facing explanation um, for an agenda that might appeal again let's say to libertarians who think oh, yeah. the federal government has exceeded its its limits and Correct. needs to be rolled back in bannon's case though there are multiple layers behind this there is the belief uh in in his case that if if uh the administrative state is pulled apart um if uh if that takes place something will come back up to fill its void that is going to be a, essentially almost a pre-enlightenment version of the United States. Something that predates the U.S. Constitution. Something that I'm predates... Sorry, but, but ben, is, can you give me the high point of pre-enlightenment anything on the planet? Pre-enlightenment? That, that was called the Dark Ages. What What is so attractive about the pre-enlightenment world? For these thinkers, it would be the primacy of spirituality, let's say. Uh, it would be the disinclination toward globalization, the notion that the world could be, let's say, spiritual, collectivist, anti-individual, uh, um, and also bounded, that you would not see expansion of goods, trade, people's governments mm. um that everything would be would be kept in its uh in its place and that you would not have free radicals individuals just moving moving uh up and down the social ladder and across borders in any which way um so when i'm describing that that sort of ideal again bits and pieces of that i, I imagine might might resonate with an american conservative and mm -hmm. bits and pieces of it might not um small government and, does <laughs> Small government, not, right? Not probably destructive, not destroying the government. No, yeah. and and we also might we also might think differently about the role of religion in public life, right? 
But most often, most often these thinkers want to see something akin to a theocracy. I haven't heard Bannon say things like that, but if you talk to Alexander Dugan about, well, who's, who's the ideal state? Sure. Where, where do we have the ideal nation in the world today? Iran is the answer. Um, because there Dugan you says see it's Iran? The reason why is because at the, at the pinnacle of power in Iran is not uh, a wealthy class. It's not a military elite. It's certainly not some proletariat workers alliance. It is the priests, right? The priest caste, the mullahs, uh, a, a prioritization of religion over everything inside the state. So uh, when you look at the U.S. and you ask me, well, what does what does Bannon hope comes in place of of the state that would be destroyed. I don't think it's a libertarian version of simply uh, new decentralization. I don't know that it is Iran. He's never said anything like that. That to me, Bannon, when you get to details, things get, get complicated. He's not, he's not stupid. Um, But it is in that direction. It is, it is a vision of the United States that is not as attached to the principles of the enlightenment as it is for virtually all other conservatives. And the constitution. And the Constitution, which is itself an Enlightenment era, era document, which is universalist, which in his mind paves the way for globalization, which is individualist, which paves the way for a lack of solidarity within the nation state. Um, so replacing those those values in his mind, will it would be something more, uh, let's say, less American, less inherently um, uh, Enlightenment, liberal and modern. So people... Um, would uh, say to me, I've heard this. I've, I can't tell you how many people in the press I have called and said, look, we disagree on everything. But mm-hmm. when you're thinking about the religious right or you're thinking about a spooky right, this is what you're talking about. And Alexander Dugan, if I'm not mistaken, his translator is either the wife or the girlfriend of Richard Spencer, the, the, the Nazi here in America. Um, so they're 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 really tied into things. The, uh, I either get a glazed over look or they'll say, what does he matter? And I'll say, well, because Bannon <laughs> is part of this and nobody and they'll say the same thing every time. He's he's no big deal. He has no influence. <sighs> And this, this is the complicated thing, because they can get away with saying that, right? It's, it's very hard to quantify Bannon's influence as well. I don't think that someone sitting on the National Security Council should be relativized. I don't think that that position should be relativized into non-existence, right? If you have a seat on the National Security Council, you, you have power and influence. If you are the, the manager of Trump's 2016 campaign, you have influence. But when we look... When we look at Bannon, we can not only talk about certain, uh, let's say, secretary uh, or leadership or administ- uh, administrative assignments that he helped um, helped make in the early days of the Trump administration. Um, we would look not only to some of the immigration uh, policies that he pursued, and I, again, I know that uh, probably a lot of our viewers and, and myself might have different thoughts about that, but I think that the key, the key thing with Bannon was also his ability, A, to narrativize the Trump movement. By that, I mean to explain and, and, and try and give meaning to what was going on, to say good, it wasn't just... A good storyteller go, of, of story important teller. stuff, yeah. He's a, a Hollywood guy. To, 
He's a Hollywood guy. And if, uh, again, if you should never overlook the power of telling a good story um, and and the way that adds meaning to these movements. But he is also a sort of networker, uh, a backroom personality and influencer. It's ironic because he seems to, to relish the limelight so much at the same time. But he brings people together. He works on different projects. Uh, he he networks. He's global. And what do we see? He is global. He he worked on the Brexit campaign, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, not and so much he, Dugan, he, but Bannon did. And he worked on the. He worked in several other European countries, organizing these right wing uh, parties, which are not the Tea Party. It's just not the same not thing. The they're absolutely not the Tea Party. This is the, it's they are anti-libertarian, right? Um, so that and and more and more increasingly, they're explicit about that fact. So also bringing in uh, in Brazil, uh, Bannon's chief efforts in Brazil were not only co- connecting with Olavo de Carvalho, who I spoke to you about earlier, but also also trying to uh, to to stoke the branch of government that was aligned with his particular values uh, in relating to traditionalism. Um, so all of those all of those things are going on. Some of his projects are catastrophic failures. Uh, some of them are sort of, you know, goofy mishaps, but occasionally they're not. Uh, and we have to look at the meeting with with Dugan in particular. And this does not mean that, you know, Russiagate was true or anything, but it, it certainly attests to Bannon's vision to bring the United States and Russia together, not on the basis, not on the basis of shared economic or political values, but on the basis, uh, in, in his mind, of a deeper religious, ethno-religious identity, probably not not so much ethno, but deeper I, religious identity. I, I will that tell you, is, when they first started saying stuff about Russia, right after he was elected, during when he was elected, I think I might have said it, you know, when he was first named uh, to the uh, the Trump um, uh, election, um, I uh, I was like, I, don't Russia, everything, everything Russia is now tainted. Um, and honestly, I thought we would find Bannon in the Russia stuff, but the Russia stuff turned out not to be true as they were uh, saying it. Trump wasn't involved yeah. in it and nothing. But Bannon was involved in Russia in an entirely different way. And, and, and at a deeper level. Right. He's, he's, he was talking about and his vision was a union between Russia and the United States against China, the basis of which would be something other than what we are used to seeing in geopolitics, not economics, not political values, but a deeper tribalistic union between our 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 peoples in his mind. Um, two it's, it's important to pay attention to this two, two spiritual leaders in a way. Yes, yes. Dugan was not interested because in his mind, there's the fact that if the United States is a Christian nation, that in and of itself does not mean anything special to him. He has no in, in his in his worldview there. He has no more allegiance to the Christian West than he does to Islamic Iran. Right. right. In, but, in fact, he has more, more right. interest in Iran because Islam and religion is more deeply embedded in the state uh, in his mind. But you have but that's what Bannon was trying to do. Right. And you have Putin understanding no love for Christianity, but understanding 
if I'm a spiritual defender, if I'm a defender of all the things these he's almost Constantine, if you will, where I don't care what yes. you decide, just come together because we'll be a great army. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This this is about about giving character and meaning to what is otherwise a fairly crude play for political power in Russia on, on Putin's part for Dugan and the people pushing uh, pushing for a more, let's say, a more ostensibly Christian Russia. It has it has actual ideological content and meaning to it. It's about pushing using religion to push against the United States. All right. Uh, Bannon is probably looking maybe at some prison time. Uh, you know, it's uh, things are not going well for him, et cetera, et cetera. Tell me, tell the the viewer, or the listener who is like, oh, that's a fascinating story. And I believe maybe those things might be true, but it's it's not going to make an impact here. Tell people what to look for, where it is you know how to stay away from it how to spot it i would at, to begin with i'm not sure that bannon is going away um he's in a legal fight right now following his pardon from president trump there's things are very much up in the air as to whether or not he might still be implicated in a legal battle surrounding this this border mm-hmm. wall um but what we see around Bannon and around this particular movement, traditionalism, is a complete disregard for the status quo and for the establishment. And that might sound good at, at face value, but I would certainly encourage uh, encourage your listeners to ask always, okay, if we destroy this, what comes next? <laughs> Who does it? It's, what fills it's, the void? It's never, it's always the same thing. Um, I've been saying it since 2007. I agree with hope and change, but change to what? I agree with making America great again, but how? You have to yes. know it. the slogans and the things that you connect on are not enough. You have to know. Please define that for me. Right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. What what comes next? Because it, it's it's very easy. A, it's very easy to destroy something. I mean, this is a, this is a common critique of the right against the left that mm-hmm. that, you know, we are completely convinced of your ability to tear down something, not convinced at all at your ability to build something up in its place. Mm-hmm. Those same that same line of questioning could be posed to this wing of of the right as well um destruction to what end define define the movements define the categories so that's that's one thing to say another thing to bring out in this um is that traditionalism the appeal of this way of thinking we might consider it spooky it might be dangerous it can also be true that it responds to actual problems in society um, and I, I see something there. I'm willing to admit, even though I, I'm, this is not my political home per se, I can still acknowledge, I think, that there is a problem if society does not have any commentary on spirituality. 
And if there is no emphasis on collective spiritual life, that doesn't mean it needs to be part of the state, but it is a, a problem that we have always known with classical liberalism and enlightenment values is that it's great at social mobility. It's great for freedom. It's not always great for community. It's going to it's going to be weak on those points. Mm-hmm. It's going to be weak on spiritual community. So there might be reason and cause to think about strengthening uh, collective spiritual life in our societies. However, that would take place so that there is not this gaping want and need that can be filled by an actor who you don't get to choose, mm-hmm. uh, by someone who can come in and address the need for reasons that could be entirely mysterious to you. I can't thank you f- enough for a writing this book um, and spending the time. I, I would love to have you on again. Uh, I, I just, pleasure, I just, uh, I don't know anybody else who has done the work. Um, and I am, I'm grateful because it's really important. Thank you. I, my, I'm grateful to you for your interest in it. Thank you. Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people. 